0: score the podcast is presented by spitfire audio
1: score the podcast
0: the only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers
1: and musical storytellers
0: from Blue Bonsai Studios in Santa Monica, this is Score the Podcast. I'm Kenny Holmes. He's Robert Kraft.
2: Yes, I am. You caffeinated? I'm over caffeinated for this one. And Blue Bonsai is just such a beautiful name. I'm a. Strangely enough, I kind of am a fan of bonsai and bonsai trees. I, I think they're they're beautiful and they're a very interesting <laughs> art form. So let's do
0: another podcast on. We'll do the bonsai podcast. Bonsai trees. Uh, our guest this week. This is his studio that we're sitting in, Joe Trapanizzi. The great Joe. Uh, he's done a bunch of huge movies in the last uh, three or four years, especially um, The Greatest Showman, Straight out of Compton, his latest, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, Arctic, which I'm glad I wore a jacket when I saw the movie because it's freezing. That movie just makes you feel... Chilly. ...alone and cold. But
2: Joe's also, you know, done Tron... With, with yeah. Daft Punk. I mean, what a what a thing to have experience for any composer to work with Daft Punk. It's and so cool. And he's produced
0: with tons of huge superstars. Um, Dr. Dre, of course, on Straight Outta Compton, M83, Moby, Zed, Kendrick Lamar, Kelly Clarkson, Dierks Bentley, uh, Mike Shinoda from Linkin Park. Um, so we're excited to have Joe on the show today. He's also uh, featured in Score, a film music documentary. Definitely.
2: I think he's one of the stars. Are you going to? You were going to tell a story. I was? Really? Another Robert Kraft story? People are instantly going, rushing for their pillows and blankets because they think, wow, do we have to hear another one? But
0: Well, as, you know, someone on social media was like, I want to hear more Robert Kraft stories. That's right. So I wanted to get a little more formal with it.
2: Hmm. Really? Uh, Not and- just an extemporaneous. Here's another tale from the uh, crypt. Because, you know, when Robert and I have conversations,
0: he often tells stories. And sometimes I'm like, wait, don't tell me that story. Save it for the show.
2: And he was talking about, was it Planet of the Apes? Well, Planet of the Apes was a really interesting moment in my film scoring history. Uh, There was a... Wait, wait a second.
0: (laughs) Gather round, everybody. It's time for another score story.
2: Wow. <laughs> That's kind of an amazing thing. It's sort of out of uh it's like one of those rides on Disneyland at Disneyland. See, you just have to you have to bring that drop with you now. Yeah. Anywhere
0: you go, and when you're about to tell a story See play that sound the so alarm I think
2: I'll have to keep it so on now my phone. now now we're ready for a story we're queued I, up we're gathered around I think the plan of the apes story is just very interesting mostly to composers but maybe all our score the podcast fans will dig it I was working on plan of the apes I think it was either dawn of or rise of it's uh, I've done worked on the music for a couple different plan of the apes this is one where uh Andy Circus, the great incredible cgi uh you know he did their precious in lord of the rings and he's done all these incredible <laughs> that's roles gonna become a drop in different uh films he was Caesar. i am Caesar in that new planet of the apes which might have been the rise of the planet of the Apes. somebody will remind me of the exact title of that first one in a new series and patrick doyle the great composer was hired to compose the score, and uh, he's truly one of my favorite composers. And what had to happen because of the logistics of the film was Patrick was receiving film footage in London, where he lives, that was the direct footage from shooting, where all the air quotes apes in the picture were actually Of course, men and women actors with green dots all over their face and bodies and microphones strapped to their head and little cameras that had been hooked up for all this motion capture. So what Patrick Doyle received as footage of the scenes were these really high tech images of men and women, sometimes on green screens, acting like monkeys with lots of gear nothing like the finished product nothing like it you couldn't believe it and he scored to those pictures and as he tells the story he was over composing and overwriting the music because he was trying to make these images that were fairly mechanical looking and not very emotional feel more dramatic so he wrote a whole score based on the images he saw cut to, as they say in movies, Weta, W-E-T-A, which is the great special effects place run by Peter Jackson in New Zealand, then takes those motion capture pictures and makes beautiful furry monkeys on screen that look amazing. Super realistic. Super realistic. Super real fur. Their eyes are very intelligent. Their mouths and hands are very realistic. And they put Patrick's demos up against this and it feels like it's overshadowing the picture. And everybody gets very, very nervous. Oh my God. And I call Patrick, who's in London, and say, I I gotta tell you you gotta come to LA tomorrow. And he got on the next plane, came to LA. By the way, one of the rules that I had broken was a rule that I had as the head of music, which is never have the composer and the director on different continents. <laughs> and I used to do that a lot. I used to have, you know, the guy would be in Australia while the director's in L.A. Or the director would be in England and the composer's writing in L.A. And it never worked. It was always something that happened. Even with FaceTime
0: and these types of things? Or was it was brief? okay
2: up to a moment, but having them in the same room is an unreplaceable asset to have them be able to just, nah, roll that back. And you know what? Uh, yeah, I, I can, can see I, that. Can I take a walk for a minute and come back and talk about this? I need to think about the scene. It's just better. You can do it, but it's better to have them in the same room. Um, Patrick comes to L.A., sees the picture, says, i got to rework everything. And he does an unbelievable job in 10 days getting ready for the score date because we're late. Until he gets to one very specific cue. And it's a cue where Cesar comes into where all the monkeys are with chocolate chip cookies. And Patrick said, I cannot, for some reason, I can't solve that cue. I don't know what to write. It's different from what I had. I'm kind of stumped. And he said the night before the scoring session, he was walking around his hotel room in Los Angeles and he did what I guess every composer does at that moment when you're stumped, which is he tries to figure out what will inspire him to compose the right cue for the scene as opposed to the cue that he had that was clearly too much. And then That's the cue right there. what happened What he did is he said he started <laughs> to walk around the room and say what was happening on screen, which is as Cesar's handing out these chocolate chip cookies and asserting his power. Patrick says I started saying say to myself, I got a cookie for you. 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 And when you hear the cue, <laughs> drums are playing exactly what I just said boom, 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 at the very end of scoring *Planet of the Apes*, and that's one of my favorite cues in the movie, called "Cookies." At the very end, the cue is called "Cookies." The cue is called "Cookies," and at the very end of scoring *Planet of the Apes*, I had the choir stay for an extra five minutes and do the lyrics. I got a cookie for you. I got <laughs> it over the, and it's on the DVD to this day. You can go to the DVD special edition track on the DVD of Rise of the Planet Apes and you see a choir and Patrick and myself on the bandstand and they're saying I got a cookie for you. I got a cookie for you. <laughs> this story young composers will tell you that inspiration can come from anywhere and that ends this week's edition of Score Stories. Score Stories. Yeah, yeah man. Yeah, thank you. So I gotta ask you then,
0: Shoot. every time you see a cookie now does that
2: I got a cookie for me. I got a cookie for me.
0: <laughs> you should get it like a, the Have you ever seen the talking cookie jars where you open them up and like a, a sound will play?
2: Does the sound say, do you really need this?
0: It could. I think you can customize it. You
2: That's should get right. Patrick Doyle to do it, too, because his voice, it would it would be great. Patrick tells that story much better than I. The only difference is with his Scottish brogue, you can only understand one every <laughs> I was five say, words. You know, we
0: interviewed him for score and he was such a joy, but it was, it was really, you're right.
2: that you his,
0: his accent is so thick. It was hard sometimes yeah. to understand what he was saying, even just sitting in the room. But what a, what a nice guy,
2: nice guy. And a great composer and a great composer in a pinch. Not unlike our upcoming guest, Joe Trapanese. Look at you with the transitions. I'm getting better. You're on fire today. Yeah,
0: that's right. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and then coming up, we're going to be joined by award-winning
2: composer Joe Trapanese. Stick around. Hey, Score fans. It's Robert Kraft. We're back to the show in 25 seconds. If you like what you're hearing, do us a quick favor. Rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. It just takes a second, and it helps the show grow. Hey! Thanks. We're going back to the show right now.
0: Welcome back. We're here at Blue Bonsai Studios in Santa Monica. Love that name. And we're welcoming in our guest this week, one of my favorite guys. By the way, probably the, the best Rolodex of stars that you've worked with. Look at this list. Daft Punk, Dr. Dre, M83, Moby, Zed, Kendrick Lamar, Kelly Clarkson. Like... Do you have any non-celebrity friends? or um, <laughs>
1: that's a It's great. Joe
0: Trapp and his <laughs> <Hey>. And Joe <laughs> is
2: the go-to guy for um, a number of things. Excellent composing, because I've seen Joe from the beginning just knock it out of the park. But also, Joe, in many ways you became and still are the answer to you know rock stars i certainly get to talk to a lot of pop artists who say boy i really want to be in film music and somewhere by about sentence 3 it's you know who you should talk to because i've seen you and i think we'll we'll certainly get to some of those stories about how you organically or accidentally became the go-to guy for non composing rock stars to make movie scores. <laughs> and, you know, just like anything in life, I think,
1: you know, obviously, yes, it's organic, but also it's a complete accident and luck and kind of fell into it. I think, you know, my curiosity is, why don't more people do exactly what I'm doing? Because everything about filmmaking is collaborative. So, you know, people have asked me, well, is it different to co-write a score than it is? Like, what are the differences between co-writing a score and and doing a score on your own? And to me... You know, I think about that. I go, not much because even when I'm writing a score on my own I have to turn around and say to the director do you like this? Is this working? Like, How do you feel? You know, And the producers are involved that sort of thing. So I think having yet one more person sitting next to you and kind of having a voice you know, if anything, sometimes it's more interesting because when you run out of ideas and it's midnight and you're exhausted and have no idea where to go you have someone
2: to turn to and say, what do you think? I like that but you're also missing one thing and it's perfect it's perfect for you to say what you just said because you're missing the humility involved in what you did (laughs) there's a certain modesty in the joe trapanese approach which is you get all the credit because you're the big rock star in the room and i will just simply be the guy that literally builds the entire house and i've seen that close up so you can't I remember coming to one recording session. I know we're jumping around and we should start at the beginning, but I'm going to tell you that I've been at a recording session of Joe's where the big rock star was in the back of the room texting his friends while Joe was sweating bullets producing the score. <laughs> and I thought, this doesn't look fair well, because <laughs> his name is going to be all <laughs> over the movie as like music by and then in small letters we will say and Joe Trapanese and I thought
1: no fair well you know you know it's it's I love being you know quote unquote the fifth Beatle you know like I think that's you you know I think obviously you know the Beatles are the Beatles and they wouldn't be that without you know without their producer without George Martin you know without George Martin they would be nowhere but you know only you know us sitting at this table know who George Martin is and those of us listening to this podcast many people don't know who he is um, and he is as important as John Paul Ringo George, or George. So. Do you like
0: that Oz kind of feel behind <clears throat> the curtain? Or it's is funny. Is there it's
1: something fu- about
0: like going to an event and being like, nobody's asking for Joe, but Joe did all the work.
1: Well, it's funny. It's funny that you mention that because that is exactly, you know, how some of the artists I've worked with have spoken about the magic in the room. You know, I think you know you want to preserve that magic, and once you kind of let the air out, like I'm very careful about behind the scenes stuff and, and, and talking about exactly what happened in the room for many reasons. Obviously you, you respect the privacy of the people you work with, but also I don't want people to lose that magical mystery of and love of, of filmmaking because if you see sometimes if you see how the sausage is made, it isn't as attractive anymore. You don't want to
2: eat it. So oh, that's you know. so true. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, Stay out of the kitchen of a lot of places probably. I think it's actually a good place to kind of tell the story i'm sure you've told it many times but i'm not sure all our listeners know i know a little piece of how tron first evolved and if i'm not mistaken it has an architectural component a kind of geographic component
1: uh yeah it it it, i was in uh Chris Beck's studio for a while as an assistant i was never a full-time assistant with him um i was the kind of the extra guy when things got really crazy i spent a summer there building some computers with him and basically i was just i was really fortunate that he got to know me and what my strengths were um which you know is Again, like I've I've spent time with other people and they don't get to know me as well as well, you know, but Chris got to see that I was um, classically trained. So that was one thing that was very important to Mm. Daft Punk, um, that I had a certain proper training of orchestration and music theory and harmony, et cetera. But then I was uh, synth nerd, Um, (laughs) partially thanks to Chris, because I'd always been a synth nerd with computers um and plugins and you know ever since i was like 13 i was playing with computer music um but chris got me into analog synths so Mm. he lent me my first the first analog synth i ever messed with and i fell in love and so i got to know analog synths fairly well because that translates to what you see on the computer screen and so anyway um his brother is an incredible uh uh uh, artist uh, named
2: uh, Chili Gonzalez, um, which I found out after st- I sorry to interrupt, but I was listening to Chili Gonzalez and found out at one point that it was Chris Beck's brother, and it blew my mind. Exactly, I had no idea. Exactly, no. I didn't know Chili Gonzalez is part of this tale. He is.
1: Well, I mean, Chili is the conduit to Daft Punk. You know, uh, Chili and Daft Punk have worked together before. He's done remixes with them. You know, Chili lives in in Europe. I think he's living in Germany right now, but he used to live in Paris. And so when Daft Punk was uh, courted by Disney at first to just write the club music for a Tron, that's mm-hmm. what that's if you've seen Tron Legacy, you know, there's a club in it. And so Disney said, oh, let's uh, get Daft Punk to, to do that. And they approached them. The director, Kaczynski, approached them and they basically said, well, we actually want to score the whole thing. And so that led down this this uh, this path where, you know, Disney went to explore and Disney said, we're going to hook. Daft Punk up with Hans Zimmer and John Powell, and they're going to talk to and Harry, you know, Harry Gregson Williams, and and talk to these, you know, our you know our A plus plus film composers. Mm-hmm. And uh, Daft Punk, knowing Chili, knowing that Chili's brother was a film composer, said we want to meet with Chris Beck too. And I, I mean, I think Chris Beck is deserving of being on that list, uh, you know, uh, with those guys. But for whatever reason, I think Disney didn't schedule a meeting with him until. Um, Until Daft Punk said, we want to meet with Chris Beck, too. And so they sat down with Chris and uh, I mean, you know, this is where the stroke of luck comes in. You know, he heard them out, what they were trying to do. And it was very apparent to him that uh, to Chris that Daft Punk didn't want to work with someone. They didn't want to work with Hans Zimmer. They didn't want to work with, you know, the top. You know, they wanted to create an artistic vision of their own. Hmm. So it's interesting. Well, yes, I've have certainly co-written a lot of scores. You know, I, I make sure to never take credit for Tron in terms of co-writing because they were the creative vision behind it 100 um, percent. And Chris, hearing that, saying, oh, OK, they want someone, but they need someone who's flexible. They need someone who knows their world, but they're also going to need someone who can mock up the orchestra and knows the orchestral mm. sensibility that film needs. He said – he literally said to them, oh, you need to hire Joe. Wow. Nice, wow. and and, right. and again, yeah. I, every time I see, it, it became a running joke with me and Chris. Chris eventually told me to stop thanking him, you know, because every time I run into Chris, I'm like, Chris, you know, I just want to make sure you know how thankful I, you know, because he really, you know, look. I mean, you know, what he said to me was this was really humbling. He said, Joe, you know, um, it just happens that I was able to help get you to a certain place in your career, but he's like, you would have been fine without that. You know, so I feel very lucky and um, that he said that, but also, you know, and very humbled that he said that. But you know, what an amazing stroke of luck that I got that break. I met with Daft Punk and you know, Did part they have of their helmets on the no, first meeting, no, they didn't, they <laughs> didn't. Although at Halloween, I asked to borrow a helmet. Were you uh, go before going into this, were you a fan of theirs? You know, I was aware of their music and who they were, but I was not one of the super fans. I was not like one of these guys. Which is probably who, perfect. Yeah, yeah, you know, like, because cause, cause I have friends who will just who just freaked out when they heard what I was doing, and I was like, oh, I guess they're...
0: Well, they're kind of like the... If I can use a, a an example, they're like the Dr. Dre of the electronic world. Like, they don't do very much, but when they do something, it's a home run, and it's anticipated, and it's a huge, huge thing. So, like... Not a lot of people get the opportunity
1: to work with them, I would imagine. No, Even meet them. Yeah, I've been, I, I that was, well, and the other kind cool thing. kind of mysterious. Well, and the cool thing about that is they have the helmets so they could go, you know, last time I saw one of them was at my local restaurant, just sitting down and having a nice meal with his family, you know? So I think, you, you know, like, that's, oh, how awesome is that? Kanye can't do that. He can't go to his local restaurant, yeah. and sit down, and have a quiet meal, you know? So these guys have it worked out, but, um, you know, but, um, you know, the the other thing that you know, part of this is you know, I think Disney wanted to hook them up with you know, someone very established and even when it came to orchestrating, they wanted to like put them with the, the you know, the biggest orchestrators and Daft Punk kinda of pushed back against so I think I the reason I was also a right fit for them is because they wanted someone who was open to their ideas. Mm. And I think, you know, one thing about collaborating in Hollywood, and we've all had stories, you know, of working with someone who says I've been doing this for twenty years. This is how I do it. This is how it's done. And Daft Punk was very anti that. You know, they wanted someone who would take what they were trying to accomplish and help them accomplish it, rather than saying, "Oh, you know, that's great, guys, but this is how it's done. I'm going to orchestrate it just like this other film score." You know, so you know that is yet another way I got lucky. I was only I'd only been in L.A. for two years by and the time I met them. Why do so, I
2: think that you were were you already at Henson? No, I wasn't. Okay. Yeah, I they was, had a studio at the Henson Studios They in did, Hollywood. and that's
1: where that's where I first met them. Was they they brought me onto the lot, right? So yeah, I, so the geography of, of that is I, I stayed on the lot for a couple of years. Got after, it. Afterwards.
2: I thought it preceded it. I thought maybe you were there, and out of all this, it also turned out the guys on the lot with us. Oh,
1: wouldn't that be great? But no, no, it was it was, it was really purely through Chris, Chris how, Beck, and how would, and, would you yeah.
0: how would you describe working with them? especially coming into a new arena because they're a huge pop sensation, but then they're coming into this world that they're not really familiar with. And we often hear that, like, you know, the, the transition of pop stars trying to become film composers, there's a different kind of pushback with the studios and the directors and stuff like that. Like, w- was was there a noticeable w- –
1: were they feeling that different kind of pressure well, you know, even I feel that pressure. You know, I think every, anyone who's a film composer, will, you know, working at, at a certain level will tell you, you know, that there's always going to be the rubs and the, the you know, the disagreements and the pressures. But I think what made uh, the Tron score so successful and, the, and that endeavor so successful is that um, uh, Thomas and Guiman from the beginning said, we are going to become film composers now. You know, there was not this, oh, we're massively successful international artists and we're going to score a film and that film's going to be our record or something. You know, I think and that I think is why it was so su- successful. I could, you know, I would never, you know, point to anything specifically. But there are other collaborations that I've been a part of or seen where <laughs> there's some of that music. There are other collaborations I've been a part of where you know the artist doesn't have that sensibility and that's where things can become problematic um with with what you're talking about with the frustration the fighting against the studio and you know because what a film composer has to realize is yes they're making art absolutely you have to consider at least i feel like you have to consider it art of the highest order um but you're creating that within another person's art within another you're painting their house that's exactly right if (laughs) they want it to be pink and you've agreed to paint their house. You're going to need to paint it pink, and 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 or or find a way to convince them that maybe pink isn't the right way. But yeah. but but you still have to have that collaboration. I think you know a lot of um, artists um, who have been tremendously successful in the record world are used to being the be all end all. You know, they're, they're, this my way scary. or the highway. Exactly. So I think you know again, what made I think Toronto so successful is they stopped everything that they were doing. You know, they can make, you know, I don't even want to imagine how much money they can make per night touring. Yeah. But they stopped doing that for two full
2: years to become film stars. That's so wonderful. And, and you're right. It's unique because the worlds are very different. And um, they're different on so many levels. Of course, pop stars have the luxury of I'm not going to release the record for another six months because I don't think I have the single. So they wait, and they look, and they record different stuff. You don't have that with a movie. You see the bus shelter with the poster, your movie, and the release date. you got to make it happen. Also, I mean, I, I had this experience a number of times where the director would be really insistent that we have to get a rock star to score the movie. And you'd talk to the rock star, and he'd say, I can do it, but, you know, I go on tour March 1st. And so I'm going to stop for the summer. And he'd say, I have to come back to the director and say, you realize that if he isn't done by March 1st, you're stopping your score. It's just such a different world. So to hear that, that Daft Punk understood the drill is wonderful. I Before we, I'm sure there's, I mean, I know there's so much else to talk about in your career. But I would wonder, before we leave that alone, what you feel you took away from working with them. As I'm sure they took a lot away about the way film music gets Made and they didn't know that, but is there anything in their process or in their gear or in their worldview that influenced your next movie or movies? Uh, millions of things. I was pretty darn young when I worked
1: on on Tron, which is going on ten years, like ten plus years ago now. But um, so I learned a lot from them just about you know making art and being being an artist. I mean, that, mm. I owe a lot to them. But in terms of practicality, I think there's a you know there's you know one. Story I like to tell, which is, you know, we were mixing and we were talking about Alan Myerson earlier off Mm -hmm. mic, an incredible recording and and mixing engineer. We were mixing with Alan and um, Daft Punk wanted to listen to a cue without the electronics. They said, hey, you know, Hmm. maybe maybe we're going to. Use this cue in the movie, but mute the synths. We, maybe we just want the orchestra. And so Alan, you know, turned down Alan the knows which button to hit. Exactly, I know. So he hits the button right. that you know mutes all the synths, the, the electronic elements, so to speak. And I, 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 I probably turned red because um, the orchestra sounded really thin. Like I was like, oh, like this is sounding really different. It doesn't sound full enough. And oh, I didn't, you know, because that was kind of my end of the job. I said, oh my goodness, I failed. And the guys go, you know, I'm not, I didn't say anything, but the guys go, okay, um, okay, wait, okay, put the electronics back in, you know, electronics coming in, a nice, big, full mix. And they say, well, uh, mute the orchestra. So Alan does the same thing, mutes the orchestra, and all of a sudden, the electronics are just thin and just kind of like uninteresting, and then, and so they go, oh, okay, uh, put it all back. And that was the piece of music. And I think the thing I try to say, and I was saying this a couple of weeks ago when I visited USC, I think modern orchestration the modern film composer um, you, you know so many so many people talk about the hybrid sound and people say to me oh Joe, you're so good at electronics and orchestra and all this what's you know what do you do and I think what it is for me because I have the classical orchestration training that I've that I have a sound in my head that has a balanced orchestra and whatnot but I don't apply that just to the orchestra I think that has to be applied to all the elements you are working with mm. you know so that, you know, you could usually tell when someone takes an orchestra and adds one synth to it or adds, you know, an orchestra to something already full, you know, whereas I feel the greatest success of that score is that we were there every day working away on this score and designing the orchestra and the electronics together from the ground up from the beginning. So I think, you know, in terms of, you know, learning something to take away from I and that was a huge one for me is that, you know, luckily that came natural to me. Like it was just, just because I grew up playing in orchestras and playing with synthesizers. But I think, you know, like, you know, when I get asked about this, this topic, I talk about that a lot because, you know, in the hybrid sound, you know, I think it's ridiculous when you hear like a weird acid synth on top of a beautiful orchestra. I mean, they need to work together. And so I think the modern film composer, modern production... You know, it would be romantic to sit at a piano and and write by hand. I wish I could do. I mean, I I do do that sometimes, but you know, that's not the job description anymore. You have yeah. to sit in front of the computer and design a cue, mock it, mock it. It's down. design. It's design, and and that's I guess my design advice is that rather than thinking of the orchestra as one thing and electronics as another thing, is it has to be one thing, and you're you're trying to complete a vision that's in your head. And however, if, if you can complete that vision with 20 bassoons and four synthesizers, great. If you can complete that vision with a full orchestra and one synthesizer, great. It just needs to be designed and have a have a purpose, if that makes sense.
2: So yeah. when you look at a the rough cut of Arctic, do you instantly say, I know the ratio of orchestra to synth? Did it come to you instantly, or was it an evolution? You know that is
1: a great question, especially around Arctic, because Arctic was a very specific challenge. Because the director is is I, I think he's brilliant, Joe Penna, and this is his first movie, and he's been known for a while as uh, as uh, you know, Mystery Guitar Man on YouTube. Yeah, he's like a YouTube <laughs> sensation. You know, which is a uh, which is which is funny because it's a comedy. You know, it's a comedy thing, but it, it, he's also a very intense incredible filmmaker you know and so you know what was so interesting about sitting down with him to watch that movie the first time was hearing and it's so funny i'm hearing the music from this is probably the most orchestral piece in that score yeah but you know a lot of the temp was acoustic and orchestral and very musical and i say that i guess in terms of like a lot of live instruments a lot of um uh, not a lot of electronics Hmm. um And it threw me for a bit of a loop because I was imagining coming into this movie, this guy's alone in the Arctic. It's going to be – Extraordinarily sparse, and you know, where's the orchestra? <laughs> you know, like he's alone in the Arctic. You know, it kind of goes. You know, there's this great story about you know, Bernard Herman wanting to score, I forget which, lifeboat, lifeboat, yeah, the, with, you Hitchcock. Know, okay. with Hitchcock and Hitchcock going, No, you you know, like where's the you're, we're out in the middle of the water, where's the orchestra? And you know, Bernard Herman being a lot more witty than I said to Hitchcock, Well, where are the cameras? Perfect, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> I love that story, but you know, similar story here where I'm going, Okay, he's in this foreign desolate world how am i gonna how am i gonna please the director you know because the director you know it, it it you know of course you have to listen to those cu those clues he tempt the movie with a lot of beautiful acoustic orchestral music how am i going to achieve that but also achieve this other thought i had which is it needs to be foreign we can't be sitting here listening to beautiful strings and feeling warm when the screen this guy what this guy's going through is so extreme so I don't know this might be getting ahead of ourselves here but one thing I did was you know I tried to write the most beautiful music I could you know because there was this you know there's this thought of the life theme you know it was a was a big was a big thought from the director that you know that you know him holding uh, mad's mad's character Overguard, at the beginning of the film holding a fish that he had just caught and it's moving and he's been alone in the Arctic for so long he hasn't hugged anything touched anything that's been alive so just holding this fish is is a magical moment so there are all these beautiful moments that you know need beautiful music but at the same time was finding a way to to bring that across in a in a way that felt that didn't feel like an orchestra just just mm-hmm. playing away you know like and and didn't feel like just a traditional film score. So I did a lot of stuff. um, Like I used a lot of odd instrumentation. So a lot of that music, the life music was 12 basses playing chords, you know, like playing, you know, really dark low, but beautiful. You know, if you hear, you know, four basses playing a high note, I mean, it's, it's it's a beautiful sound, but it's very otherworldly because, you know, the instrument's not really built to play up there, you know? So, So that was one thing. And then another thing I did, and this all comes from early conversations with the director and kind of telling him, you know, talking with him about how, you know, he was open to these ideas because, Hmm. you know, one of the first things I said to him, I said, look, I think there might be too much music. There might be too much acoustic music. Like, you know, we might be going in a direction where, you know, I want to try something, you know, different that kind of does the same thing but does it in our own unique way and feels like it's a part of the movie. Um, so all this came with conversations with, with – you know, came from conversations with Joe Pena. The other thing – so the other thing I would do would be to take either samples or recordings I had made and uh, this is really interesting. There were two things I did uh, in this regard. I would – I had three or four – I was trying out these uh, resonator speakers um, that uh, – I know this sounds crazy but uh, there are these speakers you could buy online. Like you hook them up to your iPhone. They're Bluetooth or whatever. And you attach the speaker component to like a table, and it basically uses the table to amplify the sound. I've seen this. Yeah, you've seen these. Yeah, and one of them I used that turned out to be the most successful. I can't remember the name. They all, no, there, no major manufacturers make anything. You're buying all this stuff from cheap electronics companies in China or something, you know. But but it looked like a pill, and you unscrew like a pill cap, and that's the speaker. And you there's a sticker on it, and you attach it to something. Okay. So I would attach it to different. I tried metal, um, which didn't work so well. But one of the most successful was wood. So I, I had a nice big block of nice wood, and I put a speaker at the you know that sort of resonator speaker at one end. On the other end, I would have a contact microphone, and contact microphones operate by uh, by turning sound waves, you know, basically you you put them on a surface and transmits vibrations on that surface into sound. And so basically what I was doing was taking something beautiful and acoustic and filtering it through a piece of wood. Another interesting one was attaching the speaker to a water jug and then putting a microphone inside the water jug so that way the water jug was resonating. So that was the physical component and then kind of the flip side of that is I would take uh, convolution reverb plugins, which you might be familiar with things like altiverb or um, y- you know, that's the one that comes to mind. I was using a, a plugin called Fog Convolver, which I thought was so cool because what it could do, convolution basically is taking two sounds and blending them together. So what you know, the most uh, common use of convolution like altiverb um, is a reverb. So you basically put uh, either pop a balloon or, or 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 shoot a starter gun or run a sine wave through a space like a scoring stage there's a there 's one of fox actually yeah. and then this plugin uses that sample of the room you 've basically sampled it. you've you 've created a sound taken a sound that 's activated the frequency uh, response of the room and it combines that with you know the string your sampled strings. Or even your real strings you put it through this plugin and it and it makes it seem like the strings are in that room so Ooh. i would do crazy stuff i would take the sound of um of like uh, ice cracking in the like i would find s- samples people made of ice cracking you know sheets of ice cracking in greenland you know and load that into the convolution plugin Whoa. and then i would play a piano through it and so you wind up with this the most gnarly thing you've ever heard that uh. is kind of a piano but not a piano at all um or i would take uh wind you know and 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 put that in the plug-in and then play a string chord through it and just kind of becomes this frozen blurry thing that kind of is organic but is not you know it's like completely otherworldly so you know that you know and i think what that then does You know, it's interesting because if you have seen Arctic and have listened to the score, you you could go, well, wait. There's several moments where I hear like a beautiful solo viola, solo bass, and and, you know makes those moments extra um, emotional because you haven't heard. You know the pure acoustic instrument. On, you know, for the last twenty minutes, you've just been hearing a cello playing through an ice cube. You know, so all of a sudden it's, you hear. A, I think it's unbelievably so. interesting. Well,
0: the thing that I appreciate so much about this movie too, and and any like survival movie like this, is the lack of dialogue, and how important sound design and cinematography really is because you're you're trying to connect with a character, but you don't hear them say anything. So you're you're almost you have to figure out why you like this person or why you don't like this person. And was was it more challenging to score a movie with this little amount of dialogue? Or did you find that to be helpful?
1: How does, how is that different from like, let's say straight out of Compton? Oh, that's, that's actually a great question. I think, you know, to be a hundred percent honest, which, you know, I'm usually, you try to be a little bit more veiled than this. You know, Mm -hmm. Arctic was much easier to score in a way because, you know, you know it it allowed me to do what i do best which is write music you know and i yeah. think you know having dialogue is a is a great challenge and it, you know like someone once said you know film music is like opera but without the singing you know you have to write around the voice you have to write around the dialogue you have to make sure the mm. timing of certain things is hitting so when you get a canvas which is like beautiful you know beautifully shot you know cinematic a pic, you know, pictures of the Arctic and one man, you know, wandering, you know, lost, you know, with no dialogue. It's like, hey, sign me up. I get to, <laughs> you know, I get to write some real music. Yeah. So for me, you know, I could sit down in this chair in my studio here and write music like that, you know, all day, every day, but uh, very easily. But what made Straight Out Compton, which you brought up, you know, super challenging is you have this incredibly delicate story between these these men who on the outside, you know, their music is full of bravado and like has this has this incredible like, um. and I say this word I, with love for this music, you know, gangster rap is actually the first music I ever fell in love with. I, I was eight years old, you know, and I heard same, you know, I heard Snoop Dogg or something, you know, I just, you know, like he died, you know, it was like a, I just fell in love with that music. But so coming as a fan from that music, that music is very arrogant in a way, like has this attitude, this like just you know, so I knew that going into that score I didn't need to provide a score that had this muscularity, but I need to do the exact opposite. I needed to there's no hip hop really maybe there is now, but you know, from that era, there's no hip hop that has that sensitive, that you know tenderness. that tenderness, yeah. that 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 introspective um, that's that sort of emotion. So I knew I had to approach you know but then you know that's the challenge how do you coexist with that music how do you how do you how do you find ways to write your score that that um, doesn't undermine the strength of these characters you, you know it, it becomes
2: a very much more complicated it's a job diff- it's a different assignment i think we should come back after the break yeah and talk, talk a little about bit about straight out of compton yeah and the greatest showman cuz i think those are both good examples of doing what you just described, which is you have a lot of songs and a lot of emotion on screen that you need to somehow stitch together. Sounds good. More to come with Joe Trapanizzi
0: right after this. Hey, Matt Schrader here, director of Score of Film Music Documentary. For the latest news from the film music world, follow us on Facebook. Just search Score a Film Music Documentary. Or let us know who you want to hear next on the show on Twitter, at Score the Podcast. Welcome back. We're here with Joe Trapanezzi. We're just getting to Straight Out of Compton. Really cool discussion so far about some of your other movies, but um, you mentioned that growing up, hip-hop was your first love of music, and we got to hear the story about how you got the call for
2: Straight Out of Compton. I mean, you're working with Dr. Dre, Ice Cube, some of these hip-hop legends. For Straight Out of Compton, if you're a hip-hop fan, and somebody calls you and say, would you be interested in working on this kind of story? That must have been amazing. And who called you?
1: It was the – on that one, it was the music department at Universal Pictures. So it was, uh, it was Nikki Walsh. Um, He's uh, incredible. There's also – they have a great team over there from Mike Noblock on the way down. You know Mike very well, <laughs> Robert. Mike <laughs> Noblock. Yeah, um, I know him. Well, yeah. You think you know him a little bit. No, and of course, Rachel Levy, Angela Lais, um You know, and so um, – uh, I was fresh in their minds from oblivion I just had done that movie with them and I think um, you know there's a great uh, you know there, uh, there's a great story I've heard told sometimes you know what what comes first the uh, the music or the lyrics and some people say the check you know and I think you know part of that call A, am fresh in their memory um, B, am I'm, I'm young, impressionable, and, you know, can work with artists and, and have an open mind and see, I'm not that expensive, <laughs> you know, like, um, and I, that's a terrible thing to get out there. Everyone I'm extraordinarily expensive. That
2: was a long time um, ago. Let yeah. me tell you.
1: Um, no, but the, the idea of, you know, Hey, we have all these songs that we're paying for. We can't afford, you know, X, Y, whatever this composer, cause they're going to charge I just want to put an yeah. asterisk
2: on every conversation ever about music in movies and music in general, but people always wonder about the art and the nature of the music and all that, and no one wants to acknowledge the fact that all of it has to be done within a budget. Yeah, And it's a really hard and fast rule, which is all this dreaming about how the music can be is wonderful, but you got to come in on budget. So you've just described a music movie where there's a budget allocation for songs that wipes out the budget in some ways, for original score.
0: It's not like sitting down and having lunch and paying for it after. You kind of have to, you
2: have to figure, figure out how, out how much, how much your lunch costs before you order it. Exactly right. So they come to you and they say, wow, we've just bought filet mignon. <laughs> and, but we still need something, to, a vegetable.
1: Exactly. <laughs> here And here's Joe. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's interesting. A way a friend put it, you know, this is a great story. He said, Joe, you're never going to get hired unless you're a solution to a problem. And so nice. you look at you look at the problems on that movie. Uh, big artists involved, big musical artists involved. Uh, maybe they have egos. Maybe they're going to clash. We need a composer, a score composer who's been in the room with big artists, who knows how to handle that pressure, who knows how to work with people. So okay, luckily I'm so fortunate. Luckily I check off that box. Um, okay, we need a composer who you know loves this music and and can write a, a complimentary score for it. I checked that box. I love that music, you know. And then, and then, see, we need a composer we can afford. And 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 I checked off that box too. So I think you know, it was this. When I got the call, I tried not to get too excited because mm. I would, you know, what a great opportunity. And I like like you were saying, Kenny, I grew up with that music. I love that music. And so you know, I knew I would go into that meeting with the love and respect. And and that was kind of my my pitch when I went in to meet with the filmmaker. That was you know, I got the call from the studio. Submit some music. Send your music. Send my music in. And then I think a month or two months later, I get a call and say, "Hey, come meet the director, come meet uh, f. Gary Gray, who's an incredible filmmaker, an incredible intuition and what I said to him was, I said, "You know, the star of this movie is 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 the music of these these men, so I want to make sure that that that's the star, but also um you know this is an American." hero tale like this is these are American heroes and I want to treat them as such and then and, and this you, you know that was kind of my whole, that was my whole pitch of like this is a, a rags to riches story you know and, mm-hmm. and this is not a hip hop movie you know hip hop is the is just happens to be the conduit but this movie is about four men you know or whatever you know however many men you know you want to determine were in right. nwa you know who started with nothing had every disadvantage and somehow turned that into um this incredible success and and created art that changed humanity you know so um you know so i think he appreciated that i you know so that was you know that was my that was my way in i think you know um uh, yeah, it's very important, and when you go into a film like that, that you have some sort of viewpoint like that. I Did know.
0: He, uh, I, I wanted to ask. Please go ahead. I was going to say. I, I know Queen was really heavily involved with like Bohemian Rhapsody. How involved, especially Dr. Dre, who's a producer first? How. Was he over your shoulder working with you? How involved was he in in the process of all this? Well
1: I was very lucky that, you know, with you know, through Mike, through the team at Universal, through all of us and and the director, we we kind of we knew, you know, Dr. Dre was the elephant. The, I mean, this guy is is i I don't even know how to describe him he's he's not only changed music but he's changed you know technology and 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 there's no way there's no way around it i mean he is a force um and rightfully so because he's been relevant for for decades now so um we knew that eventually well first of all he was a producer on the movie and he actually um you know was involved from day one was in script meetings was on set i mean this guy was was the movie, you know, was in, in the, was into the movie. And so we knew we were going to have to play the score for him. We were going to have to have him over, play cues. But luckily we designed that, you know, we knew that was coming. So we designed our schedule around it. We made sure that I had a couple months to write the score, to get approvals from the director, to get approvals from, you know, to get the music supervisor involved. The, the Mike Nobloch came to my studio, you know, like everyone kind of, supported me and kind of as a family came together said, let's make sure Joe delivers this score and to a, to at least a point where it sounds good as a demo, it's mostly complete, and that's when we had Dr. Dre over. Hmm. And the incredible thing about Dr. Dre is he's very quiet, he's very humble, um, but <laughs> and you think he, like, he doesn't need to be because he's Dr. Dre, but he's very respectful of other artists. I mean, he was very respectful coming to the studio and didn't say much but when he did say things it it was like like pinpoint accuracy of like what the deficiencies were in the score and and helped improve it so you know that to me like you know say no more this is the reason why this guy is so incredible and you know he's a he's a music he's he's one of the best music producers who ever lived and this is why he's an incredible music he listens he uses his ears he's not saying anything and then when he does say something it's exactly what you needed to hear to get you to that next step. Well, that's so,
0: probably different from the normal process, too, where, like, most producers or filmmakers aren't musical, and they're trying to explain something to you that you're then trying to transform what they're saying and make it musical. But
1: he spoke your language. That's a great point. And, and you know, it, it's funny because, you know, we like to joke about this. A little bit of knowledge is dangerous. Like, there sometimes the the most difficult producers you work with are the ones who oh yeah I studied you know trumpet in school so, Why is it know? always trumpet? <laughs> I it's
2: just I knew you'd say it. I've had that sitting next to a great director who when we were talking about the score said, You don't have to worry about me. I played trumpet in my high school band. I thought I really am going to start worrying now because you're gonna tell me, you know, I'm, I understand all this stuff. I, I th- I've always assumed going
0: into this straight out of Compton movie when you hear you wrote the score that there would be drum beats and it would be, it would be hip hop, but it's, it almost was steered in another direction to completely separate it from the music of NWA. And it's like very orchestral, which is really interesting. Was that a focus right away when they sat down with you? Like, we don't want this to be a hip hop original score. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah,
1: of course. I mean, it's interesting. You know, those early conversations with Gary and with with the producers, you know, had nothing to do with, like, specific musical colors, you know, like orchestra versus this versus that. So, you know, we were just talking about just overall, you know, writing the score, just writing, you know, what is that score? And to me, internally you know that was though what what you just said was my own internal dialogue was um uh, between me my music editor my team you know we're just talking about okay what is this score and i think you know something very important to me um I remember telling a friend that I was doing straight out comp and they said, Oh, great, you're going to write a hip hop score. And I said to, to him, Absolutely not. This is the music of Dr. Dre and Ice Cube and, and, and MWA. I'm going to sound like a fool. You know, I, I'm not, you know, these, <laughs> guys are, <laughs> these guys are the most incredible hip hop producers of all time. So I'm going to, if I try to do it, they do. You know, I'm going to fall on my face and and be ridiculous. So I need to do what I do best, which is score film and find the natural organic way of scoring this film. So that led to two things. So, so one thing was exactly that using the orchestra, using organic sound to get to a place that you can't get to in the amazing music of NW. You know, that music is incredible at describing a whole range of emotions, but not necessarily incredible at describing something warm and heartfelt and something uh, like internal tension and the the tension between um, uh, two people like on a on a really deep emotional level so so that the music we 're listening to now is is exactly that you know something that you know hip hop is you know again is my first love musically you know is just not that great at emot- describing emotion like this, so that was job number one for me, you know, like get to that heart, get to that core. The other interesting thing, there were scenes where I needed to have an action tilt or, you know, someone was driving a car and whatever, you know, there, there was something more aggressive. And so what I did is just, and you could argue about how successful or unsuccessful, successful I was at it. But I said, you know, what I'm going to do is take my sounds. I put together like, a lot of key sounds I use, like you know, film scoring. You know, this is nothing foreign to film scoring, like taiko drums and, you know, kind of the the especially percussion, like percussive sounds. But I also, but then I was researching how did Dre produce his music? Like, what type of techniques did he use? So I would take the sounds of my music, of film music, of our music, and run them through what I just jokingly called the Dre filter. Like if Dre <laughs> had these sounds, like what would he do with them? So that's how I approach, approached like the opening the mo- of the movie as an action scene. So I approached that in that way, you know, kind of from a sample perspective, from, you know, a drum machine perspective, that sort of thing. So, you know, whether that comes through or is, you know, is really present is, is, is one thing. But that, that was kind of my internal Internal dialogue.
2: Really amazing job, too. And that movie, in strange ways, helped me with another project. Which oh, I want to hear all about was, it. Someday I can tell you how it's <laughs> your work in Straight Out of oh, Compton. Oh, I thought you were going to break some news right now. No. There. Well, it's, uh, you know, I have a picture at Warner Brothers Studios, which is the story of the Sugar Hill Gang and ooh. Rapper's Delight. And that's coming up uh, next year. But Straight Out of Compton proved. That a story, in a certain milieu with certain kinds of characters, could be a worldwide hit, and yeah. and that movie yeah. really helped. And um, I thought it was a great job. Aside it,
0: from that, too, you you got to work on the album a little bit. You did some string,
1: yes, uh, yes. Dre had you know it was crazy because I remember midway through the process, so when, so when I'm asking, I'm I'm watching the movie. I'm asked the editor, what song? Like, what is this song? Like, oh, this is from Dre's new album. I'm, you know, it's like the records. I'm like, wait, Dre's new album. They're like, oh, yeah, Dre's been, you know, creating this album, you know, and it's kind of has a, its handshake with us with, you know, and, and, uh, you know, with the movie and we're going to use some of it. And so I'm hearing strings, I'm hearing sample strings, and I say, we got to re-record this. So when we got to... Uh, recording the score. We record the score with our incredible orchestra here in LA on, on Sony Pictures and Dre, you know, I invited him to the session and he showed up right when the session was starting. It was there just about the whole day and I had, between me and my orchestrator, um, amazing orchestrator, Jennifer Hammond, we prepared, we basically took you know, we created new string charts around these songs and just had them ready to go and re recorded them and they used them on the record. And so, yeah, it's so cool. Just so amazing.
2: It's just, just a wonderful. small
1: credit on a Dr.
0: Dre album to, <laughs> for your resume? That's not too I don't bad.
2: No, if um, you, I don't think a lot of people are aware, when I was at Fox, they had an idea for a movie called The Greatest Showman. And the first thing that I was approached with, with Michael Gracie, The director of record was getting lots of different musical artists to write each song and uh, we hadn't even gotten to the discussion of composer and it was uh, Michael and I talked about I can't even you know we'll get Elton John to write a song and we'll get these different artists to write songs for each thing the project just kind of stalled and maybe a year or two later I left Fox and then I heard, wow, they're really doing it, and they got Pasek and Paul to write songs, and they're bringing Joe Trapanese in. But I kept hearing the same thing, which is I don't know if it's working. I have certainly had people that were on the inside. Wow, picture's really difficult to finish. I'm not sure we're confident. Even up to the day of release, there was a lot of... I guess consternation as to whether the movie was going to work. Trepidations, the
1: the usual trepidation usual that trepidation. comes with spending a hundred million dollars on something.
2: Right, you know, is, you, it doesn't you work. never know, um, and the opposite is also true, which is people high fiving themselves just before a movie opens to go, oh man, where are you going to build your you know spare bedroom and your new guest house? In the are you going to buy that land next to you to expand? And then you find out by Friday afternoon oops so both are i've seen both happen i've been caught up in both but i was very aware that showman was kind of a guess cut to the grammy being awarded to the greatest showman compilation album i think greatest showman is currently probably approaching a billion dollars worldwide it's insane i mean the
1: record i think i haven't checked in a week or two but was back to number one in the UK for thirty weeks. Yeah, it's longer than like some Beatles records Sergeant and Peppers. Adele. Yeah, some, some of the Sergeant Pe- Yeah, it's just it's just bonkers. But you know, it's so funny hearing you talk about that perspective because that is a very valid perspective. The studio, we spent a hundred million dollars. Uh, you know, is it going to work? Is it going to work? And this is where I feel so lucky because hey, it's not my money.
2: Uh-huh. You know, but also
1: <laughs> but also where my stress comes from is when I first had that meeting with Michael Gracie. In October 2014, hmm. I, l- I had to look at my calendar. I said, "How long ago did I start working That's on the Great? About show? right, yeah." He showed me the artwork, you know, his his vision, and it was beautiful. It was impeccable. It was insane. I said, "Anything you need, I am here for you." You know, anything you need, and then cut to, I guess, about six months later, I get introduced to Pascal Paul. And I go meet them in I, – I met them in D.C. because they were doing the out-of-town uh, for Dear Evan Hansen, the workshop. Yeah. Mm. And um, and I spent an afternoon with them learning their music, learning the songs they had written already, getting to know them, talking about music. Talk, and, and same story. Like, oh, my God, these songs are so incredible and catchy and beautiful and timely and just this is exactly what we need. So I went into that one. You know, almost trying to look at myself as like a caretaker, as a guardian of this beautiful seed, you know, that had Pascal and Paul and Michael Gracie had, had created the seed, and I, I needed to help it grow however I could and not screw it up. And I think, you know, this is what you're talking about. This is the heartbreaking thing about movies is that no matter how precious the art is, it's made by committee, there are a lot of people involved. There's tons of politics. You know, like Pask and Paul went from being young songwriters, kind of young nobodies who were really talented to while working on showman. I mean and it, when I came in, by the way, the idea was still Pask and Paul would write a few songs. But really, we're going to have Elton John write. Then we're going to have this other guy. You know, they wind up, of course, writing every song because they're so damn brilliant. Um, but at the beginning, it was very different. By the end of this process, they had won Tonys, Oscars. You know, Grammy. You know, they went from being these "quote unquote" nobodies, which uh, nobody's ever a nobody. But I'm just using this as a as a frame of unknowns. reference. Unknowns. They yep. to being within a year. Within they were a year, and top so, of the game. Yeah. Yep. And this has nothing to do with them. This has more to do with the machine of Hollywood. You know, that creates a ton more grinding on the gears of. Oh my gosh! Look at what we have so all of a sudden people who are paying attention to the film who weren't paying attention because now it's such an important stake in the ground for for Fox and now they're maybe spending more money on it than they were going to plan to and now they have to bring in an additional editor and this and you know and this started as you could probably recall as a Hugh Jackman passion project you know yep. Hugh Jackman had made well has made what a dozen movies with Fox and they've all made bazillions of dollars so yep. of course he's earned some cachet to say hey I have this passion project I want to do and Fox you know saying yes we're your partner in this we're going to do it, even if they lose money on it. They're going, hey, you know, we need this actor to be happy because we're going to keep making movies with him. He's incredible, and so anyway, that's what it. Made on. some money. <laughs> well, it's one of these things where yeah, it came out opening weekend and it failed miserably opening weekend. I remember giant flop. The reviews were just. I've never seen so much vitriol. Like it, it was so bizarre. It felt like with every new review, like the next reviewer was trying to one up how hard they were cutting into the movie. Like just really, just how hard can I cut into this movie? Harder than the last reviewer. I'm gonna show them, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, it was heartbreaking to see. But also, you know, I remember spending that weekend with my girlfriend, having you know, waking up, having a coffee, you know, saying, "Well, it's a shame." I mean, we've all been there, where we wake up and 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 our baby is dead. Yep, <laughs> you know exactly. and, and really it's a terrible analogy but it yep. is true because at that point I had spent 3 plus years on the movie um believed in it from the ground up from every note of every song was a was a masterfully written song and here it was DOA dead on arrival yep. and so you know you, you but you know we get over it because you know that's that's the business I'm already on moving uh, on to on my, on my next movie and so you know, to see – and, and nobody wanted to talk about it. Everyone was – and then so it's so interesting to see, you know, the weeks and months following where all of a sudden everyone's talking about Why it. Why do you think it resurrected like that? Uh, you know, I, I really think it's the music. I mean, those songs – and, and I didn't write a single note of those songs. I, and, you know, I have to set the records, right, because some people are out there saying, oh, Joe, your songs are incredible. It's like, I wish I wrote those songs. That's all, Pascal and Paul, you know. And I'm I'm fortunate to have been in the room with them, and to work with them, and to produce several of those songs, and to create the orchestra for several of those songs, and to be a key part of that. But um, you, I you heard know. that
2: the movie was a success because of the orchestration. <laughs> that tipped it. No, it's a it's really a wonderful mystery what you're describing, which is it flops the first weekend. It doesn't flop. I think it did eight. 8 million or something oh, for, really for a, low I think the and movie w- cost like 80 or yeah, 70 I mean I or the first whatever. night maybe that's what it was Was this
0: your first time working with John Debney
1: Um yes it was and and you know that's yet another interesting part of the story there was at one point I was you know there was talk there was rumors that I was going to score the film because I had been so instrumental early on in finding the sound of the songs in finding the the, how the orchestra was going to be, you know, it's like, oh, it's just natural. Joe scores this. And, you know, the director called me one day and said, you know, I really want a classic Hollywood sound. And, you know, so I saw this Jungle Book and it's got this amazing classical Hollywood sound. I want to hire John Debney, And I said, great. Well, I mean, of course, it's hurt, you know, it hurts you. But I said, but I know John personally. He's an incredible human being and he's a great composer. So I said, you know, he's going to do great. This is going to be fantastic. Um, you know, because what can you do in that situation other than be, you know, other than say, hey, you know, go forth. This is going to be great. I'm going to be a fan. I'm going to cheer you on. I mean, that's how you have to do it. And, you know, I got a call later in the game that said, you know, like John's doing great, but we need to connect it more to the songs. We need to connect the score is too separate from the songs. Hmm. And so, you know, I kept on getting calls. You know, I would not work on Showman for a few months, or even there was probably a point where I didn't work on it for six months. But the phone would always ring, hey, Joe, it's so and so. We need you to come in Anton. and do this. Yeah, it's Anton or it's or it's Rebecca or it's uh, Justin, you know, and, yeah. and Ben, you know, it's those guys or, or, or it's yeah, so many people had a hand in making that movie what it is um, that I got that call again that said, hey, will you work alongside John Debney? And I said, of course. I mean, John is an incredible human being, incredible composer. I'm going to learn so much working as, alongside him. And he felt the same. So he said, Joe, I'm so happy to have you here because I'm going to learn so much from you. Um, and we just had a blast. And, 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 you know, it's stuff like that, the positive energy, that the protecting of that seed that gets you through how crazy these movies can get. How, you know, because I remember I was on – the Fox scoring stage, I think at midnight, you know, on a Sunday with a full orchestra. You know, and people were in the booth, producers and this, and then not sure about something. And oh, what is Joe doing? What is he you know, and I'm just I'm very zen about it because it's like the only thing I know how to do is is make the greatest music I can make. And, you know, is it is it the greatest music? No, but I this is this is my baby, this is what I do, this is what you pay me for. And so I'm just going to keep doing that. So the politics of that crazy situation don't rattle me so much because of that and then also i was very lucky to have a partner in john debney and anton and danielle and some like great people at fox you know kind of like help you know be my therapist for a while it was it was a really difficult project but things aren't so difficult when you have that magical spark when you're remembering that you're like i'm protecting this i have to to carry this forward
2: so beautiful i think the the biggest takeaway In every story that you've told is something you actually mentioned in the beginning that's usually just the composer and the director. But everything you're describing is not only the art of music and the art of scoring, but it's the art of collaboration. Yeah. Because all of it you're describing as you're a team player with Dre and you're a team player with Daft Punk and you're a team player, in this case, with Debney and with the studio and with the director who might want this and that. And how interesting it is that as musicians, you know, we're really focused on our expression and our self-expression. And that's sort of what we bring to the party, which is I have an ability with a language that's musical. And yet you have to subvert some of your ego sometimes or your opinion to listen to others the amazing thing you've also described is how wonderful it is when others have good ideas. Because we've all been through the situation where someone says, "Hey, I have an idea. Why don't you stand on your head and play it backwards and have the <laughs> snare drum underwater?" and and you say, um, "Let me think about that. That could work." You know, you have to be really politic for. But you've described collaboration as almost the pinnacle of what you do the other thing that really came through certainly from a former head of music is midnight on a sunday all i think about is triple scale golden time well i
1: think that's when Rebe- i think that's overtime, when i think that's when rebecca said session's done like she just stepped
0: budget in budget considerations. considerations i was gonna say
2: go, go ahead and explain what what you're talking about well you have to pay an orchestra union scale and um you know the orchestra Composers may not be in a union, but the AF of M, the American Federation of Musicians, local 47 in Los Angeles, is a union shop. Every player that's on a stage at Fox, Sony, Warner Brothers, gets paid a very particular rate, gets paid overtime after three hours, gets paid fringe benefits. If you have 90 people... And they're there at midnight. They at, probably didn't start at eleven. So sessions we are
1: started <laughs> at seven. That was that was. And I say midnight. You know, we. That's when Rebecca stepped in and said session is done. But Good. we were there until about two thirty, recording overdubs. So there were, there were some musicians. I think there were about three or four of them doing overdubs, who had started at seven p.m. and we were there right. until about two thirty. Rebecca in the is Rebecca Morolato. <laughs> she,
2: she's amazing behind the scenes <laughs> at Fox Music, making sure that all of this runs like clockwork, and. Um, What Joe's describing is two things. You have to do what you have to do to get it done, because you have a big clock ticking, and you feel the cash register going ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching every 10 minutes in a session like that, because you know that you are driving a budget up. And what I was describing is, not only is there scale for the three hours, but the minute you go into overtime, all the prices go up. So... And And they keep going up. And they keep going up. And the worst part is when you have a score that you've recorded in London and you need one extra day and the decision for union reasons, for legal reasons, is you have to go back to London for just one more session. And you have to fly the whole crew back and you have to go across the ocean and you have to book the studio. Movie scoring is an expense, but clearly worth it. And clearly worth it when you have someone like Joe Trapanese being your guy love this applause this is great. it's really incredible joe and we didn't even get to a number of my favorite pictures that you have scored but it's just so interesting and it's i i i would like to give not only a shout out to joe but every director who may be listening you could ask for not a whole lot more than this joe's attitude. the guy well it's just the attitude of of not only gratitude but the attitude of collaboration that Every composer must have, and I don't, don't think young composers sometimes understand, it's a partnership with a lot of people to get to the finish line.
0: I just have one last question for you. You've worked with a ton of pop stars on their records. Is there anybody that showed any sort of interest, kind of to compose maybe mentioned it to you like oh man i'd love to do i know like m83 is has most dabbled people, in- yeah
1: it's, it's funny i mean most people who i've worked with are are curious about what i do and and you know in that regard and oh i thought about you know and, and you know some of them you know i've i've told them the honest truth of what film composing is they go yeah you know this is why i'm not a film composer i can't do that you know i can't you know and some of the artists i've i've worked with you know like i you know Okay, Joe. So this artist is gonna call you uh seven uh eighteen in the morning. They're in New York, they're gonna do this and, and they have one minute, you know, and you're gonna talk about this. You know, and and film composing is hours and weeks and months of sweat, you know, and a a lot of these artists are making they make their money from touring, especially now. That's it, that's you know, a very interesting you know, back in the day artists can make a living from album sales. That's not no longer the case. So they have to be touring to make their money, and so touring and writing film music is not conducive. Um, you know, I've done some projects where the artist is trying to write in the back of the bus or something and, you know, it's just not, not hugely successful. So I think, you know, um, like most great artists are curious about other things as I'm, you know, I'm curious about like, Oh, what's it like to tour? You know, mm-hmm. I, w- I would love to make a record, like go into the studio every day for a month and just jam and make music. And that's the record, you know, like that's sexy to me. But then once you look at the reality of, well, you got to get an advance from the label and then the label, going got to do this and then this. And I go, Oh no, I'd, I'd rather do what I'm doing. So I think, it's a bit mutual in that regard. A lot of them have gone, oh, we're good. You know? There's
2: also a funny little dividing line. As you look at the artists that Joe has worked with, they're all hugely successful. So it's, as Joe described, hugely successful artists have a whole career. What I always find is that the ones that have become interested in film scoring have this attitude. You know, my record career's over. Uh, I'm not a pop star anymore. I'm not making any money as a pop star. Hey, you know what I've thought of? Sometimes people say, some of my songs sound like movie music. Hey, man, (laughs) maybe, what do you think? Could we talk about how I could become a film composer? And that's when you want to say, um... You know, solar panels are a good way to get (laughs) some additional income. Well, it's
1: interesting, you know, if if someone wants to be a film composer, they need to just become a film composer. It's It's not, let me call up somebody and talk about becoming, it's not, you have to become a film composer.
2: And some people do. They do, yeah. And some people do it, and as you just described, say, never again. They go through (laughs) one movie, and they find out the director wants them to stand on their head and write with a snare drum underwater, and they say, this just isn't me. Do you have... do you have opposite
0: aspirations? I know, like Brian Tyler's doing some EDM stuff. Like you have the skills to do something like that. Do you have any interest?
2: Yo, Trapping easy Band, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> yeah. won't you welcome,
0: please
1: tonight <laughs> live at the I Whiskey. I love this. I love this. <laughs> well, I'm a huge Doors fan, so I would love to go to the Whiskey and and, and Let's play. Do it. But you, you know, it's interesting. You know, every time I, I, you know, yes, it's very romantic. I I could I would love to sit down and write a record, but just the the fact is, I'm I'm too busy. Scoring scoring movies and scoring, you know, and I think maybe. Good problem to have. It's a great problem. Nice. And I think, you know, one day I'd love to make. I have, I have some friends who are incredible film composers who've made incredible records. And, you know, I, I did a trailer album a while ago that was really special to me. But, you know, it's interesting. It's a whole different monster, right?
2: It is. And it's a. uh
0: Oh, it's the air. I yeah. was trying to figure out what that noise was.
2: You mentioned, you know, it's an advance and a label. Oh, by the way, Joe where's the single get ready for that exactly and and we'd like to put um this new artist on the label who i think should have a step out and also do you have a little rap section you could build in for eight bars suddenly talk about a collaborative want to bring post malone on here exactly Exactly. you'd say yes in a minute and then it wouldn't be you and it wouldn't be your record and it wouldn't really sound like you and the worst thing that would happen is it becomes a hit and they want another one just just like like it So they all have their disadvantages, but I think Joe Trapanese certainly showed the advantage of being Joe Trapanese. (laughs) I feel very lucky. Joe, this has been great,
0: man. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Yeah, there's a lot of people in here. They've been very quiet throughout. Um, We want to, again, thank Joe for joining the show. Um, Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts to score the podcast or your favorite podcast platform if you like what you're hearing. And uh, be sure to rate and review. It helps us grow. And
2: uh, maybe even tell a friend. Oh, I think if you have any friends, you should definitely tell them, particularly if they're in the movie business, so they can learn about the fabulous art of film composing. Hey, Kenny, will I?